This is a recording of In the Mount of the Lord It Shall Be Seen and Provided, Theophany and Sacrifice as the Etiological Foundation of the Temple in Israelite and Latter-day Saint Tradition, by Matthew L. Bowen. Originally published in Interpreter, a Journal of Mormon Scripture, Volume 5, 2013, pages 201 through 227, read by Andrew Smith. This audio recording is copyrighted under a Creative Commons license and may be freely distributed if it remains unchanged, the journal and its website are credited, and is for non-commercial use. A printed version of this and many other articles and resources on Mormon scripture can be found at mormoninterpreter.com. Abstract. For ancient Israelites, the temple was a place where sacrifice and theophany, i.e. seeing God or other heavenly beings, converged. The account of Abraham's arrested sacrifice of Isaac in Genesis 22, and the account of the arrested slaughter in Jerusalem following David's unauthorized census of Israel, 2 Samuel 24, 1 Chronicles 21, served as etiological narratives, explanations of cause or origin for the location of the Jerusalem temple and its sacrifices. Wordplay on the verb ra'ah, to see, in these narratives creates an etiological link between the place names Jehovah Yireh, Moriah, and the threshing floor of Arauna, or Ornan, pointing to the future location of the Jerusalem temple as the place of theophany and sacrifice par excellence. Isaac's arrested sacrifice and the vicarious animal sacrifices of the temple anticipated Jesus' later unarrested sacrifice, since, as Jesus himself stated, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. Sacrifice itself was a kind of theophany in which one's own redemption could be seen, and the scriptures of the Restoration confirm that Abraham and many others, even a great many thousand years before the coming of Christ, saw Jesus' sacrifice and rejoiced. Additionally, theophany and sacrifice converge in the canonized revelations regarding the building of the Latter-day Temple. These temple revelations begin with a promise of theophany and mandate sacrifice from the Latter-day Saints. In essence, the temple itself was, and is, Christ's atonement having its intended effect on humanity. Article When Jesus told his opponents, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad, he alluded to his atoning sacrifice and to the Genesis 22 account of Abraham's binding and arrested sacrifice of Isaac. In this narrative, the Hebrew verb ra'ah, to see, serves as a verbal link that offers both a basis for the site of the temple as a place where the Lord was seen, and a location where sacrificial substitute was provided, seen to. In other words, the Genesis 22 narrative makes the verb see a sacrificial and temple-related term. Ancient Israelite writers and editors make this conversion of theophany, seeing a manifestation of God, and sacrifice the ideological basis, i.e. cause or origin, of the location of the Jerusalem temple and its name, Mount Moriah. Using the verb ra'ah, several Old Testament texts create ideological links between the place names Jehovah Yireh, Moriah, and the threshing floor of Arauna, or Ornan, these pointing to the future location of the Jerusalem temple as the place of theophany and sacrifice par excellence, and serving as the basis for subsequent temple worship, including Latter-day Saint temples. The arrested sacrifice of Isaac, a prototype sacrifice for the vicarious animal sacrifices in Israel's cult and Jesus' unarrested sacrifice, served as the foundation story for Israel and Judah's most important temple, the temple in Jerusalem. However, later events in the vicinity of Mount Moriah would imbue every temple experience, from the Jerusalem Temple to Latter-day Saint temples, with additional sacred significance. 
the ideological narratives of the Hebrew Bible, our Old Testament, that explain the location of the Jerusalem Temple as a convergence of theophany and sacrifice, help us better understand the atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ and its relevance in our lives. These narratives also help us better understand events pertaining to the establishment of Latter-day Temples, beginning with the Kirtland Temple, and how the Savior's atonement is inextricably at heart of their building and everything done in them today. Latter-day temples are also places where theophany converges with sacrifice, both in the temple's concept and day-to-day function, as revealed to the prophet Joseph Smith. The Mountain as Temple, the Place of Sacrifice and Theophany Mountains as temples in the scriptures have been widely discussed, because theophanies often occur atop mountains. Sacrifice on mountains, though less often discussed, is equally important to what ancient Israelites saw as the raison d'etre for the temple. The connection between mountains and sacrifice in ancient Israel is evident in the practice of sacrificing at high places, bamot, i.e., sacrificing at an elevated place. Sacrifice at these high places was later condemned and suppressed by kings Hezekiah and Josiah, and evaluated negatively by the Deuteronomistic historian or historians, who promoted a centralized cult at Jerusalem in accordance with Deuteronomy 12, 1-14, versus localized rural worship. Sacrifice on mountains is attested elsewhere in the Hebrew Bible. Genesis 31:54 indicates that Jacob, at the conclusion of an oath with Laban, offered sacrifice upon a mount and held a communal meal. According to Numbers 28.6, the continual burnt offering of the Israelite temple was ordained in Mount Sinai. A major part of Moses' blessing upon the tribes of Zebulun and Issachar was that they would call the people unto the mountain where they shall offer sacrifices of righteousness. Perhaps more significantly, Ezekiel equates the holy mountain of God, or the mountain of God, with Eden, the garden of God, drawing on extant pre-exilic Israelite traditions regarding the fall. Genesis 3.8 indicates that the Garden of Eden was the presence of the Lord where he walked and was seen, and we shall see below the joy of Adam and Eve's redemption was that after the fall they would again, in the flesh, see God on account of sacrifice. Why dost thou offer sacrifice unto the Lord, Adam's altar, and the regaining of the Lord's presence? Joy and redemption are of a piece with theophany and sacrifice. The laughing, i.e. rejoicing, that accompanied the Lord's announcement of the birth of Isaac to Abraham and Sarah, must have been equaled by the rejoicing that accompanied the arrested sacrifice of Isaac when Abraham saw the meaning of the offering of his son Isaac and the significance of its arrest. This joy and gladness was noted by the Savior himself. Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and saw it, and was glad. Jesus' words also appear to allude to or play on the meaning of the name Isaac. May he laugh, may he rejoice. In the Book of Mormon, Nephi, the son of Helaman, also alludes to Abraham's rejoicing over seeing his sons, his posterities, and his own redemption in Jesus Christ. Yea, and behold, Abraham saw of his coming, and was filled with gladness, and did rejoice. Yea, and behold, I say unto you that Abraham not only knew of these things, but there were many before the days of Abraham, who were called by the order of God, yea, even after the order of his son, and this that it should be shown unto the people a great many thousand years before his coming, that even redemption should come unto them.
Nephi teaches here that people, a great many thousand years before the Savior's atoning sacrifice, understood the intimate connection between theophany, sacrifice, and temple, because they were shown that even redemption should come unto them. The antiquity of sacrifice, in connection with theophany, is further suggested in Moses 5.4, which records that after the fall, Adam and Eve called upon the name of the Lord, and heard the voice of the Lord from the way toward the Garden of Eden, speaking unto them. But they saw him not, for they were shut out from his presence. The loss of the presence, or face, of God was one of the earliest consequences of the fall. In other words, the theophany that was a part of life in the garden ceased with the fall. When Adam and Eve lost the presence of God, they also lost the temple. Donald W. Perry has shown that the Garden of Eden, as described in Genesis, represents a prototype temple or sanctuary. For them to regain his presence or face, Adam and Eve and their posterity also needed to regain the temple. Mercifully, the Lord took immediate steps to ensure that they could regain his presence. Perry further suggests that the Lord's clothing Adam and Eve with coats of skins implies that they were taught the ordinance of sacrifice while still in the Garden of Eden, and that they were perhaps clothed in the skin of the sacrificial animal, an ever-present type of their future redemption that was to be worn upon the body. Once they had been taught the meaning of sacrifice, they would be able, with eyes of faith, to see their eventual redemption even in the clothing upon their bodies. Moses 5, 5-8 chronicles the sacrifices that Adam and Eve obediently continued to offer after they were driven out of the garden and lost God's presence. Following their consistent, faithful obedience, Adam and Eve were again granted a theophany in which they were taught the true meaning of the sacrifices that they were offering. And he gave unto them commandments that they should worship the Lord their God, and should offer the firstlings of their flocks for an offering unto the Lord. And Adam was obedient unto the commandments of the Lord. And after many days an angel of the Lord appeared unto Adam, saying, Why dost thou offer sacrifices unto the Lord? And Adam said unto him, I know not, save the Lord commanded me. Then the angel spake, saying, This thing is a similitude of the sacrifice of the only begotten of the Father, which is full of grace and truth. Wherefore, thou shalt do all that thou doest in the name of the Son, and thou shalt repent and call upon God in the name of the Son forevermore. The offering of the firstlings of the flocks presupposes Adam's having built an altar. The altar upon which Adam makes these offerings, in similitude of the sacrifice of the only begotten of the Father, is for him and his posterity the beginning of regaining the temple, the Lord's presence. If, as Moses 4.31 indicates, Adam and Eve were driven out to the east of Eden and resided there, the altar presupposed in this narrative would also have been situated east of the garden temple, the cherubim, and the way of the tree of life. The location of the sacrificial altar on the east of Tabernacle and the east-facing Jerusalem temple finds its analog in Adam's altar, and it is not impossible that the former was thought to be a representation of the latter, as it is in present-day Latter-day Saint temple worship. Whatever the case, the narrative of Moses 5 establishes Adam's altar sacrifices as antecedents for future temple worship among all of the families of the earth and for humanity's regaining the theophany of the garden temple. 
The narrative never divulges the identity of the angel of the Lord who appears to Adam and Eve, although frequently in scripture the angel of the Lord is indistinguishable from the Lord himself. In either case, the appearance of this divine being was a reward for Adam's faithful obedience and perhaps especially Eve's seeing with an eye of faith. It was a sign to them that the Lord's presence or face was not irredeemably lost to them, and so it was that the Lord sent angels to converse with humanity and caused them to behold of his glory, i.e. God himself conversed with men and made known unto them the plan of redemption which had been prepared from the foundation of the world, whose central figure was a sacrificial lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Through the law of sacrifice and a theophany, which taught its meaning, Adam and Eve saw their redemption and resurrection with opened eyes. They comprehended that they would again, in the flesh, see God, and they had joy. Thus, according to modern revelation, theophany and sacrifice in a temple setting are inextricably linked from the very beginning, theophany itself being a sign that the atonement works, that humanity is redeemed from the fall and brought back into the Lord's presence. The revelation regarding the garden and the fall that came to the prophet Joseph Smith through his work of translating, revising the KJV, extends the tradition of sacrifice and theophany back through time a great many thousand years. The prophet's work of translation effectively grounded the temple in these primeval events. For the Latter-day Saints, temple tradition begins here. Perhaps not coincidentally, Revelations to the prophet on the building of a modern temple begin shortly after the revelation of the text of Moses 5 in June through October of 1830 and the Enoch revelation in Moses 6 through 7, November through December 1830. In D&C 36.8, part of a revelation given in December 1830, the Lord promised a theophany in a temple, Gird up your loins and I will suddenly come to my temple. The Latter-day Temple was, from the beginning, also associated with theophany and, as we shall see, with sacrifice. God shall provide himself a lamb, the arrested sacrifice of Isaac and Jerusalem. The Genesis narratives that describe the life of Abraham are concerned with not only Israel's future inheritance of the land promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but also the future building of the Jerusalem Temple. These narratives describe Abraham's building a number of altars, usually at places where Abraham also experiences a theophany, often accompanied by the Lord's making him promises. In several instances, these places are tied to the theophanic experiences in the text by means of paronomasia, that is, a wordplay involving similar-sounding words. For example, it is at Moreh that the Lord appeared, Wayera, unto Abram, and said, Unto thy seed will I give this land, and there builded he an altar unto the Lord, who appeared, Hanire, unto him. Genesis thirteen fourteen through 18 reports that the Lord commanded Abram to lift up his eyes, and look, Ure, for all the land which thou seest, Roe, to thee will I give it, and to thy seed forever. And it will make thy seed as the dust of the earth, so that if a man can number the dust of the earth, then shall thy seed also be numbered. This becomes the basis for Abram's tenting at the plain, or at the oak, of Mamre, where again he built an altar to the Lord. In other words, Abraham built functional temples, or the beginnings of temples, 
at places where he received the promise of eternal seed and land, and where the Lord required him to see or look forward to the fulfillment of his promises to him with an eye of faith. Throughout his life, Abraham had to see the promises afar off, yet he persistently believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. It is important to note that Abraham himself never inherits the land in mortality as promised here, but dies in faith as a stranger and pilgrim on that land. Here at Mamre, another significant event is that the Lord himself acts to bring about the promise of a numberless seed or posterity to Abraham through Sarah. What follows will prove to be one of the defining events in Abraham's life. The Lord appeared to Abraham again at the plains or oak of Mamre, at the tent of the door in the heat of the day. Then he lifted up his eyes and looked, and lo, three men stood by him, and when he saw them, he ran to meet them from the tent door and bowed himself toward the ground. Abraham's obeisance and hospitality hint at the importance and perhaps the divinity of these three visitors. Here at Mamre, Abraham receives the promise of Isaac, the fulfillment of which Sarah will be required to see with an eye of faith. Abraham's and Sarah's ability to see with an eye of faith was truly put to the test later in Isaac's life when the Lord subsequently commanded Abraham to offer up his son Isaac, the child on whom all of the Lord's promises to Abraham rested. Take now thy son, thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah, and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains which I will tell thee of. Abraham obediently goes unto the place of which, which God had told him. The narrative then notes that on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw Wayar, the place afar off. Abraham's ability to see Moriah afar off suggests more than good eyesight in a physical sense or farsightedness, but his ability to behold with an eye of faith. In Genesis 22.8, the Hebrew verb ra'ah, see, takes on the sense provide, thus becoming a sacrificial term. And Abraham said, My son, God, will provide himself, yari'ilo, literally, will see to himself, a lamb for a burnt offering. Thus far, Abraham has been either the subject or the indirect object of the verb to see. Here, God is the subject, but he also becomes an implied object of the verb. God will see to the lamb that will be the burnt offering. He will provide himself as the lamb. It is not clear yet that Abraham knows exactly how this will happen, but he knows that all things are possible to the Lord, and he proceeds in faith. And they came to the place which God had told him of, and Abraham built an altar there, and laid the wood in order, and bound Isaac his son, and laid him upon the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched forth his hand, and took the knife to slay his son. And the angel of the Lord called unto him out of heaven, and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here am I. And he said, Lay not thine hand upon the lad, neither do thou anything unto him. Now I know that thou fearest God, seeing thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes, and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went, and took the ram, and offered him up for a burnt offering in the stead of his son. And Abraham called the name of that place Jehovah Yireh, as it is said to this day, In the mount of the Lord it shall be seen. A number of things merit attention here. 
First, the Hebrew expression, Mount of the Lord, is identical to the phrase used by Isaiah to describe the temple, the mountain of the Lord's house, or the mountain of the Lord, that would be established in the tops of the mountains in the last days. Moshe Girsil suggests that in these passages, Isaiah 2, 2-3, and Micah 4, 1-3, the ancient name of the temple site is hinted at, Mount Moriah, as it is called in the Second Chronicles 3, 1, or the land of Moriah, in Genesis 22. Notably, the phrase Mount of the Lord, or Mountain of the Lord, is used in Numbers 10.33 as a reference to Mount Sinai, or Horeb, where Jehovah himself was seen by Moses and the elders of Israel, and where he literally caused Israel to see his glory. The temple was the architectural embodiment of Sinai, but it was also the architectural embodiment of Abraham's Moriah, where he literally placed everything the Lord had given him and everything that the Lord had promised him upon the altar. Secondly, the narrative's language is ambiguous. Besides the traditional Masoretic reading, in the mountain of the Lord it shall be seen, the consonantal text can be read in other ways, including in the mountain Jehovah shall be seen, or in the mountain Jehovah shall be provided. This idea is reflected in the other ancient witnesses to the Old Testament text. The Septuagint reads, In the mount the Lord appeared, or was seen, i.e. was provided. Two Septuagint manuscripts, the Peshitta, the Targums, and a Vulgate manuscript affix the pronoun this to this mount. Thus, in this mountain, Jehovah shall be seen, or in this mountain, Jehovah shall be provided. The name Yehovah Yireh means simply, the Lord shall see, the Lord shall provide, or, revoweled, the Lord shall appear. The wordplay in Genesis 22.14 suggests what or whom the Lord shall see to and provide, not merely the offering of a ram, but the offering of himself. Last, and perhaps most important, the act of offering Isaac was accounted unto Abraham for righteousness and obedience, because Abraham himself accounted that God was able to raise Isaac up, even from the dead, from whence he also he received him in a figure. In other words, Abraham not only saw that the Lord would provide himself a lamb, i.e. provide himself as the lamb, but also that the Lord would be resurrected and bring about the resurrection of the dead, thus providing, or preparing, a way for the fulfillment of all of the Lord's promises. Abraham saw that even if he were to offer Isaac, the Lord would still faithfully fulfill his promise of posterity, as numberless as the stars of heaven or the sands of the sea. Later narratives about David's theophany and the arrested slaughter of Jerusalem at the threshing floor of Arauna or Ornan also repeatedly use the verb ra'ah, to see, to explain the appropriateness of the site of the Jerusalem temple. In 2 Samuel 24.17, David sees the destroying angel in theophany, slaughtering Israel on account of David's own sin, and is about to destroy Jerusalem. The Lord arrests the slaughter at the future temple site. In the chronicler's version of the story, David intercedes on behalf of the people. Even I it is that have sinned, and done evil indeed. But as for these sheep, what have they done? Let thine hand, I pray thee, O Lord my God, be on me, and upon my father's house. 
Jesus, one of David's father's house, later suffers and dies very near this site, both for David's sins and the sins of all humanity. David is then commanded through Gad the seer to rear up or set up an altar unto the Lord in the threshing floor of Araunah, the Jebusite. In the chronicler's version, Araunah too saw the angel and thus sells the site to David, who then builds an altar there and offers sacrifice. The second Samuel version indicates that once the altar is built and David offers burnt offerings and peace offerings, that the Lord was entreated for the land and the plague was stayed from Israel. In other words, not only was vicarious sacrifice at this specific site necessary for the slaughter of Israel and Jerusalem to be permanently arrested, but the temple had to be built at this specific site, hence the theophany of the destroying angel indicating where the Lord wanted the temple built. The Jerusalem temple is later built by Solomon, and the chronicler specifically connects this threshing floor with the site of Isaac's arrested sacrifice and the building of the temple. Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord at Jerusalem in Mount Moriah, where the Lord appeared unto David his father in the place that David had prepared in the threshing floor of Ornon the Jebusite. The name Moriah occurs only in these two passages. There is indeed a figure in the arrested sacrifice of Isaac and the arrested slaughter of Jerusalem for those who have faith in Christ, many of whom die in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, are persuaded of them. For those with eyes to see, the establishment of the Jerusalem temple at Moriah, or Jehovah Yireh, is about more than Isaac's arrested sacrifice, the arrested slaughter of Jerusalem, and the vicarious animal sacrifices performed there that memorialized these events. It is to look forward to God's Son for redemption. Sacrifice itself is a kind of theophany in the which one sees one's own redemption. They saw God and did eat and drink. Theophany and Sacrifice on Mount Sinai After Moses led Israel out of Egypt and into the wilderness, Israel experienced the Lord's presence. Exodus 24 describes a theophany unlike any other in the Old Testament, given the number of persons involved and the clarity with which Jehovah, the God of Israel, is seen. They went up, Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and they saw Wayiru, the God of Israel, and there was under his feet, as it were, a paved work of sapphire stone, and as it were the body of heaven in its clearness. And upon the nobles of children of Israel he laid not his hand. Also they saw God, and did eat and drink. Why did the Lord not lay his hand upon them? According to 24 verses 5 through 8, sacrifices preceded this theophany, and atoning blood was sprinkled upon the people. The participants in the theophany also participated in a sacramental meal. The slaughter or death, often feared by those who see God, was arrested, a result of atonement. Exodus 20, verse 18, suggests that the remainder of Israel saw the Lord, or the visible signs of his presence, at some remove. Deuteronomy 5.24 indicates that the Lord caused them to see his glory, but Israel hardened their hearts and could not endure his presence. Two consistent aspects of their behavior in the wilderness commemorated and warned against in Israel's temple hymns. 
The Sinai Horeb experience and the Lord's face or presence retained tremendous ritual significance, the temple becoming the architectural realization and the ritual enlargement of the Sinai experience. According to Exodus 23.17 and Deuteronomy 16.16, 16, every Israelite male was to come to the temple three times in a year. The consonantal formula usually translated appear before the Lord because of the Masoretic voweling could also be rendered see the Lord's face in, in most instances. In either case, Israel was to go to the temple to see or be seen by the Lord. And Leviticus 9, 3-4 specifically instructs Israel that sacrifices are to be offered at the temple because today the Lord will appear nirah unto you. Gethsemane and Golgotha, the mounts where Jehovah was provided. In a real sense, Jesus' entire life can be said to constitute his atoning sacrifice. See Mosiah 3, 5-7. The anguish that Jesus Christ suffered for the wickedness and abominations of his people, which was so great that blood came from every pore, he suffered in Gethsemane, a garden near the Wadi Kidron, that separates the Mount of Olives from the Temple Mount, evidently on the slope of the former. Of the Gospel writers, Luke describes Jesus' suffering in Gethsemane in the greatest detail, incorporating important details that the other evangelists leave out. He notes not only that the Savior's sweat was great drops of blood falling to the ground, also that in the midst of his indescribable agony that there was a theophany, the angel that appeared to him from heaven and strengthened him. In the Septuagint, Genesis 12, 7, 17, 1, and in the Genesis Apocryphon, this form of the verb is used of God appearing to Abraham. The Savior, in performing the greatest act of faith in cosmic history, was strengthened just as he, as Jehovah, had strengthened the faithful, and had made many strong even in, unto the sitting down in the place which he has prepared in the mansions of the Father. Here we consider again the basic meaning of the place name of Isaac's arrested sacrifice, Yehovah Yireh, the Lord shall see. Merrill J. Bateman, commenting on Abinadi's exegesis of Isaiah 53 in Mosiah 14-15, through 15, suggests that Isaiah's phrase, he shall see his seed, denotes Jesus' seeing the numberless souls for whom he suffered, spirits whom he saw or somehow experienced in Gethsemane. Like his use of Yireh, he shall see, Isaiah's use of Zerah, seed, recalls the Abraham-Isaac stories. It was in Isaac that Abraham's seed would be called, and in Gethsemane, Jesus took on him the seed of Abraham. In a very personal way, taking him upon him their pains, sicknesses, and sins. He saw the seed for whom he was the substitute ram or lamb, and what would be required for their succor i.e., what would be needed to make them even as he is. In a sense, this was the other theophany that Jesus saw in Gethsemane, his seed as they were, are, and will be, and perhaps his seed saw him. What Jesus suffered after Gethsemane was anything but an anticlimax. This is suggested not only by the detailed narratives of the gospel writers who describe the spitting, buffeting, and other physical and verbal abuse that Jesus endured, but also by scriptural texts that indicate that his suffering on the cross was seen hundreds and even thousands of years beforehand. Enoch, who had seen Jehovah weep at humanity's wickedness and had himself mourned, rejoiced at seeing the Savior lifted up, 
knowing the blessings that this would mean for himself and for Zion. And behold, Enoch saw the day of the coming of the Son of Man, even in the flesh, and his soul rejoiced, saying, The righteous is lifted up, and the Lamb is slain from the foundation of the world. And through faith I am in the bosom of the Father, and behold, Zion is with me. Nephi, too, on an exceedingly high mountain, was privileged to see the same event. And I looked, and beheld the Lamb of God, that he was taken by the people, yea, the everlasting God, judged of the world, and I saw and bear record, and I, Nephi, saw that he was lifted up upon the cross, and slain for the sins of the world. When Pilate declares to the crowd, Behold the man, he presents Jesus as a spectacle, and those who witness his crucifixion thereafter witness with their own eyes what many had already seen with eyes of faith. The language in the accounts of Enoch and Nephi's visions is similar to John 8, 56-58, thus echoing Genesis 22 and Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac as well as the true atoning sacrifice that he foresaw with an eye of faith. And just as Jesus appeared in Theophany at first as the premortal Jehovah, and then as the transfigured and later crucified Christ, he would also appear as the resurrected Lord to whom all power, authority, in heaven and earth is given, first to Jerusalem, and then to sheep of other folds. Theophany at the Temple in Bountiful In prefacing his account of Jesus' ministry among the Nephites and those who had been called Lamanites, Mormon emphasizes that he, Jesus, did truly manifest himself unto them, showing his body unto them, and ministering unto them. The specific praxis of, i.e., how one implements the Lord's eternal law of sacrifice, was changed at that time, as he himself makes clear. And ye shall offer up unto me no more the shedding of blood. Yea, your sacrifices and your burnt offerings shall be done away, for I will accept none of your sacrifices and your burnt offerings. The sacramental overtones evident in this injunction are clearer in what follows. But ye shall offer for a sacrifice unto me a broken heart and a contrite spirit. And whoso cometh unto me with a broken heart and a contrite spirit, him will I baptize with fire and with the Holy Ghost. The sacrifice that involved the contrite or broken heart, see Psalms 51, 17, was then key not only to the Lord's acceptance of the individual worshiper, but also to the collective repentance and the gathering of Israel, see especially 3 Nephi 10, 6. As the faith in the hearts of the Nephite and Lamanite survivors began to be sufficient, and they came unto Jesus with a broken heart and a contrite spirit, and with full purpose of heart, the Savior began to heal them by first appearing to them at the temple, which was in the land bountiful. When Jesus appears to the Nephites, the voice of God the Father introduces him three times, but only the third time do they open their ears to hear it. Once they have ears to hear, they are prepared for theophany. And behold, they saw a man descending out of heaven, and he was clothed in a white robe, and he came down and stood in the midst of them. And the eyes of the whole multitude were turned upon him, and they durst not open their mouths, even one to another, and wist not what it meant, for they thought it was an angel that a hit appeared unto them. Additional sacred confirmation of Jesus' identity comes by way of personal invitation. The theophany at the temple in Bountiful not only involved a multitude of 2,500 souls seeing and hearing the Lord, but also their experiencing him by feeling 
the sure signs of an earlier sacrifice, his atoning sacrifice on their behalf. As John W. Welch has noted, the subsequent institution of the sacrament is done in remembrance not of the broken body or of the suffering of the Lord, but of the unforgettably glorified body with which Jesus appeared to them. And this ye shall do in remembrance of my body, which I have shown unto you, i.e., my body which I have caused you to see. And it shall be a testimony unto the Father that you do always remember me. And if ye do always remember me, ye shall have my spirit to be with you. The sacrament was instituted among the Nephites in remembrance of Jesus' atoning sacrifice, but also his theophany at the temple, a theophany that fit the pattern of Jesus' premortal ministration to the brother of Jared and his flesh-and-blood ministry among his people. Sacrifice brings forth the blessings of heaven, sacrifice, theophany, and the Latter-day Temple. The foundations of the Latter-day Saint Temple are also grounded in theophany and sacrifice. As noted above, the Lord's revelations to the Prophet Joseph Smith regarding the Latter-day Temple begin in late 1830 with the promise of a temple theophany. Wherefore, gird up your loins, and I will suddenly come to my temple. Subsequent revelations in 1831 reiterate this promise. At the same time, the Prophet learned that the time prior to the Lord's second coming was a day of sacrifice and a day for the tithing of my people. A September 1832 revelation on the temple envisioned latter-day sons of Moses and sons of Aaron offering an acceptable offering and sacrifice in the house of the Lord, which house shall be built unto the Lord in this generation. The temple spoken of was to be built in Independence, Jackson County, Missouri, a site later identified by Brigham Young with the Garden of Eden, the first temple. Although the commanded temple in Independence did not materialize, revelations and commandments on the temple kept coming to the prophet. In an August 1833 revelation, the Lord declared that those who know their hearts are honest and are broken and their spirits are contrite and are willing to observe their covenants by sacrifice, yea, every sacrifice which I, the Lord, shall command, they are accepted of me. The Lord's words have indirect reference to Abraham, who did observe every sacrifice which the Lord commanded. The sacrifice the Lord was commanding that would enable them to become like Abraham was, and is, the building of the temple. Behold, this is the tithing and the sacrifice which I, the Lord, require at their hands, that there may be a house built unto me for the salvation of Zion. And inasmuch as my people build a house unto me in the name of the Lord, and do not suffer any unclean thing to come into it, that it be not defiled, my glory shall rest upon it, yea, and my presence shall be there, for I will come into it, and all the pure in heart that shall come into it shall see God. As the prophet Joseph Smith and the saints learned, the building of a temple was itself a sacrifice that created the appropriate conditions necessary for ongoing theophanies, to restore priesthood keys as on the Mount of Transfiguration, D&C 110 records that the building of the Kirtland Temple was finally answered with the theophany promised in D&C 36.8. It was a theophany like the one experienced by the elders of Israel at Mount Sinai. The veil was taken from our minds, and the eyes of our understanding were opened. We saw the Lord standing upon the breastwork of the pulpit before us, and under his feet was a paved work of pure gold in color like amber. The paved work of pure gold, like amber, under the Savior's feet, 
recalls the paved work of, of a sapphire stone under the feet of the God of Israel at the Theophany in Exodus 24.10. The visions and blessings of old had indeed returned. The appearance of the Savior indicated that the saints' sacrifices had been accepted, and the law on which the blessings of such a Theophany were predicated had been obeyed. The Kirtland Theophanies, however, were but a prelude to something greater that God already provided, namely vicarious ordinance work for the dead that would provide a welding link back to those who had been made fit for heaven through sacrificial sufferings. Vicarious ordinance work for the dead, including the performance of sealing ordinances, constitutes the latter-day equivalent of the sacrifices of righteousness offered at the Jerusalem temple. Sacrifices that prepare not only our kindred dead, but also prepare us to see the God who promises to unveil his face unto all the pure in heart, in his own time, and in his own way, according to his own will. Conclusion. To see the Lord is to partake of his atoning sacrifice. On a mountain temple, Moses, who learned that fallen man was nothing, also learned that he was able to behold God because God's glory had come upon him, i.e. he was transfigured and cleansed. Isaiah, similarly overwhelmed by feelings of inadequacy, as a man of unclean lips in the midst of a people of unclean lips, had his iniquity purged so that he could be in the Lord's presence in the temple and participate in the divine council. For both prophets, not the blood of a sacrificial animal, but rather of the Lord himself, enabled them to remain in his presence the Lord would provide himself in the mountain. If our eyes could be opened like Adam and Eve's, and if we could see with purer eyes like Abraham, we would better appreciate that the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ is not only at the heart of the temple, both in its concept and in its ordinances, but that the temple is the Savior's atonement. That atonement is gradually but surely exerting its intended effect upon the family of Adam and Eve through the temple. May the Lord open our eyes that we may see our promised redemption and rejoice with Adam and Eve, Enoch, Abraham, Sarah, our kindred dead, and all saints of ages past. This has been a recording of In the Mount of the Lord It Shall Be Seen and Provided, Theophany and Sacrifice as the Ideological Foundation of the Temple in Israelite and Latter-day Saint Tradition by Matthew L. Bowen, originally published in Interpreter, a Journal of Mormon Scripture, Volume 5, 2013, pages 201 through 227, read by Andrew Smith. A printed version of this and many other articles and resources on Mormon Scripture can be found at mormoninterpreter.com.